This podcast is sponsored by our good friends who have become patrons via the Patreon crowdfunding site. If you'd like to join them, helping us produce more podcasts, films, and other shows, please go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to find out more. And welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast. Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And we're very pleased to be bringing you a rather different interview from usual. Yes, we'd like to introduce you to Jason Pentrail, Micah Hanks and James Waldo, otherwise known as the Seven Ages Research Associates over in America. The Seven Ages team have a website dedicated to history, archaeology, science and culture producing regular podcasts and news items. Covering, it has to be said, a far wider view of history than we do. But much of their work focuses on similar themes, so we thought you'd really like to know about what they're doing. Indeed. We came across each other's work after our interview with the American giant of archaeology, Bruce Bradley. And it really seemed like a good idea to try to introduce you to these guys, because, as we commented in Bruce's interview... We tend to be so focused on the Neolithic and Bronze Age on this side of the Atlantic that we actually don't know all that much about some of the amazing archaeology that's being done in the States. So I don't think we really need to say any more. Should we just get them on and let them speak for themselves? I think we should. Welcome to you, Seven Ages. Jason Pentrell, Micah Hanks, James Waldo. Thank you for being with us and uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your energy and expertise with our listeners. Well, I don't know about expertise, but we are glad to be here. And of course, uh, trying to, uh, you know, do, I think what we see and what we admire you guys uh, for doing, there are many avocationalists, you know, or dedicated amateurs who are so passionate about this. And what we often find with the dedicated amateur is you don't necessarily have the university funding and so what propels you is your love for yeah. what you do. I mean, we've spoken yeah. with you guys about the filmmaking side of it. Yeah. How much time, how much effort, energy, cost goes into that. Yeah. That's definitely something that we see is that when people are driven by passion, they take it seriously. And so that's yeah. what we try to do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's a really good distinction that, uh, that, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, you know, the, the only difference between an amateur and a professional is that that's how a professional makes his living. And there are so many amateurs out there in any field you care to mention. There are so many amateurs who are every bit as good as many a professional that you've met. And it's just down to, mm. you know, whether it's attention to detail or the way you present things. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, you don't need to be a professional to be doing professional quality work. And, uh, you know, we were blown away by what you guys yeah, yeah put together and uh, and something that I wanted to ask you straight off was you know we looked at the vast scope of what you guys cover yeah. from deep prehistory yeah you've got James's background in geology where so you're pushing stuff back you know way outside uh, any human prehistory uh, and then coming into, you know, I mean, you, you've, you've done a podcast on uh, the archaeology of pirates. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought, how cool is this? Um, <laughs> so, you know, your remit is so vast. How how did you actually come to do this? You know, did, was it a conscious decision when you guys started off or has it just developed over time into, you know, this vast beast that it is? Yes. What's the origin story? <laughs> Well, it really comes from the fact that 
collectively we have so many interests um, in archaeology, anthropology, history in general. Um, we come from different areas of the country, and with the United States being so large, we have so many different representations of history uh, over a large time period. Uh, we have a lot of influences from other places as well, obviously. So uh, with that melting pot idea, um, there's so many topics for us to cover. Um, I come from a, a coastal town in South Carolina uh, called Charleston, which is one of the earliest cities in the United States. So that history from a young age gave me exposure to the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, right up through the pirate age and, and on into uh, Native American history. So um, I, brought, I was brought up around all of those, those areas. And then again, James being from the, the middle of the country in the state of Arkansas, and then uh, Micah being from a uh, very historical area in Asheville, North Carolina, it kind of uh, seeded our interest, if you will, in, in many different forms of history. Uh, speaking personally, I've always been obsessed with archaeology and anthropology since I was a child. And it's just, uh, there's so much here to take in uh, that we try to put a little bit of content out there for everyone who may be interested. Mm -hmm. uh, we try not to get too focused on one area. Uh, we like to diversify and have a, a plethora of topics for different people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so, do, you, do you find yourself, you know, um, speaking to a, a, a general audience? Are they, are they quite niche? Um, it can be a bit of both. I know James uh, had uh, had a family member reach out at one point and say something akin to, you know, I'm fascinated with what you guys are talking about, but some of it, you know, some of the some of the language, you know, on the academic side of things mm -hmm. can be a little uh, hard to follow at times. And so I think uh, what we've kind of tried to do is to have the appeal yeah. that, you know, a general audience will be able to to listen and enjoy. But we find that a lot of academics are drawn to the work that we are doing because we're talking about their niche or their, you know, profession. And yeah. of course we try to, you know, have professionals come on the show and talk yeah. about things as you fellas do. So mm. what we often find is they, they're interested in hearing what their colleagues have to say in an interview format mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, yeah it, it appeals, I think to both, to both, you know, contingencies yeah. at time. And with such a, a broad set of interests between the three of you, how do you get to decide, you know, which direction you're going to go, which week, which month, uh, et cetera? You know, what's the, what's the triage process of uh, uh, subjects that you'd like to cover? That's a good question. Yeah, well, one of the issues there is there's so much that we want to cover. Sometimes it's, it's hard to kind of hone in on one topic. We usually try to plan shows, three or four shows in advance, so we kind of know what's coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, however, um, we are involved in a lot of different areas of research where we're actually physically involved doing the research and in some cases doing actual excavation. Um, and one of those areas is the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis, which we've continued to see grow and develop over the last decade. Mm -hmm. More evidence is coming to light, and we are in a unique position to where we are actually directly involved with that research. Um, therefore, we do put a little bit more emphasis on that topic yeah, yeah. Uh, just due to the fact that we are very close with the researchers, and in many cases, we are actually involved with the research hands-on in the field. So mm. uh, that's something that you'll continue to see be updated over the time. Uh, one thing that we've wanted to do, which is one reason we found your show so appealing, is we're wanting to reach a, a bigger international audience. We, again, yeah. don't want to be 
such a niche that someone outside of the United States couldn't appreciate the work that we do. So with that in mind, we are trying to expand to more international guests, mm -hmm. more archaeologists, and more lines of research, mm -hmm. uh, just so that we can fully represent our interests, because we do have the same interests, you know, abroad as we do for our own our own country. And we, we have done a show um, about Ireland and some of the fantastic megalithic sites there. Mm -hmm. uh, but we want, and that was due to the fact that we had a listener in Ireland who requested it. And we said, sure, why not? You know, if you guys will give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, but as we move forward over the next year and we begin to grow our audience, we certainly want to include all areas yeah. of uh, research, including, you know, with such, a, a, broad, yeah, yeah, yeah. So with such a, a broad eclectic mix of, of subjects, I can't help but feel that you, the potential for your audience is just fantastic. It's enormous. Yeah. yeah. We, um, BBC Radio 4, there was a program um, in our time, uh, and it's been going for a very long time, and that is so eclectic, and yet it's the one of the most fascinating uh, radio shows uh, that the BBC um, put out for many reasons. You just don't know where you're going to go next, and yet it's always fascinating because you've got the right experts talking at the right time, you know, and, um, you know, the host is... Uh, Knows his it's stuff. Mel Are you talking about Melvin, Melvin Bragg? Bragg? Melvin Bragg. I'm Aye. talking about Melvin Bragg. Yes. So yes, I just made me think of that. Thinking of uh, your eclecticism uh, made me think of uh, uh, in our time and the potential legs that you've got. You know, with such a breadth of of, uh, of subject matter. Yeah. yeah. I also notice that also one of your um, ambitions, uh, one of your driving missions uh, that you state is bringing together academics and collectors and amateurs. From our side of the Atlantic, it, 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 it's a different kind of problem over here. It kind of exists, but it's more uh, pertinent uh, in America, it seems, where there is the division. You know, you've got the land ownership and, uh, and, and a history of uh, collectors pretty well being able to go and take what they like, you know, even paying for the privilege. And yet that uh, doesn't jive well with academics who uh, need something else out of the ground. Could you s say a bit uh, about that? Yeah, certainly. It is a bit of an interesting situation because often what you see is on a state-by-state -state level uh, across the United States, there can be different laws. Mm. And so what what may be acceptable in one state or community, you know, again, there may be an entirely different attitude an hour away across that state line. Uh, generally, I think that the prevailing attitude, of course, especially in American archaeology is, you know, let the archaeologists actually do the work, you know, where it's legal. Of course, no one can be stopped from, for instance, surface collecting and things along those lines. But, you know, our general impression is that, you know, collecting and things like that are kind of frowned upon in general because the academic attitude is, you know, these things are part of our cultural history. Uh, we want to understand these people and we want to understand their way of life. And we want to, you know, again, these are keys, artifacts and things are mm -hmm. keys to understand these sorts of things. But by the same token, you know, if it is legal in many states, for instance, for collecting to occur and for surface fines to be acquired, if the academics aren't able to talk to the collectors who have those things, they're potentially missing out on important information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the professionals that we work with are very uh, happy to work alongside the collectors and to see what they have and to learn about the locations where they found these things because, again, that's a data point. 
we can, no pun intended, considering we're talking about actual, you know, lithic yeah, projectile yeah. points in many cases yeah. here in North America. Yeah. But yeah, certainly to know where these came from, uh, to be able to have an idea of the indication or the uh, conditions under which it was found, this is very useful to academics. And so you know, we have actually even had certain encouragement from members of academia to become involved, but again, to always do so in accordance with the laws and with the protocols in our state, which, for example, included all of us at very least at one point. I know my license is expired and I have to get it renewed, but we've all had hobby divers licenses. Yeah. And so that with the encouragement of some of our friends in uh, academia, we can actually go about the proper collection and reporting of items uh, so that academics can not only know where things are found and what is being found, but we can also, of course, in many cases, bring that directly to them and help them because they just haven't got the time to get out there and to collect that sort of information in many cases, yeah. apart from professional, well-controlled archaeological digs. But that's the other thing that we really are passionate about is, as you know, again, as, as amateurs, assisting on digs where there are those controls and where the yeah. archaeologists are on site and we know that what we're doing is in the furtherance of what they're trying to learn mm -hmm. and with their oversight. That's one of the very best things. And we always encourage people, get involved, you know, and assist with, with the academic pursuits. I That's think you're very... absolutely right, Mike. I think it's a, it's a game changer for anybody that hasn't been on an, archaeological, on an archaeological dig before, you know, how important it's not the artifact itself or the material that comes out of the ground. It's the ground in which it was found <laughs> that's yes, the important yeah. thing. The context, context, context. Without the context, uh, the, the, the thing itself is, is meaningless. It can't tell a story uh, outside of its, uh, its recorded context. And when amateurs like myself, I was on a dig uh, up on Orkney uh, last year, uh, get that settled in their mind, it's quite a game changer as, as to what your understanding of, of, of what a you know, a piece of flint means. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one thing that's really important about people volunteering <clears throat> is when you do so, it creates a community around that site. Yeah. And mm. when people from a town or a community go out to a site and they were there when something was discovered or they see the scientific process and they understand how it works, mm. it creates ownership in the site. And then, people tend to want to share that and spread that ownership to other surrounding areas. So when you feel like you've been a part of something and you haven't been cordoned off where you're not allowed to go over there, you're not allowed to be a part of that, when, when it becomes a community involvement, it, it creates ownership of a site. And therefore, you have a, a larger group that are looking after these things and they spread that knowledge to the surrounding areas. So I think it's vitally important if you love history and you love archaeology, find a site that you can volunteer on and become a part of that. And, uh, you know, you, that becomes part of your story and part of yeah. your community. Yeah, yeah. Now, I probably wouldn't, we probably wouldn't have come across you. And uh, if it hadn't been for Rupert's initial interest, he was, um, you know, had much more of a passion for it than I do. And that's the origin stories uh, of the Americas uh, and when human beings first arrived in America. And uh, I know Rupert, before me, was a fan of Bruce Bradley. So perhaps, Rupert, you could ask about uh, uh, the guy's um, particular interest. in. Uh... It's not necessarily about the first people in America. Mm. It's about the fact that people didn't all have to come across the Bering Straits. <laughs> and uh, as, uh, as Bruce said so eloquently, 
you know, in, in his interview uh, with us, and I'm sure he said it with you too. Uh, but it's that if people were digging up this complete assemblage, his Salutrian uh, hypothesis, mm -hmm. if people were digging up this complete assemblage in, take your pick, Siberia, then all archaeologists would say, yeah, cool, the Salutrians got to Siberia. It's purely and simply because this assemblage is found in America that everyone's saying, or not everybody, the, you know, the, it, the tide is turning. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that so many archaeologists say, no, it couldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that bugged me, the, the reason it kicked off for us was that uh, um, when I was researching after standing with stones, we were looking for you know, our next angle. And I found a, uh, a burial site that uh, is in Spain and uh, all the diagrams of its structure, its internal structure, quite unique. And I, and I carried on looking and carried on looking and I, I stumbled across another set of drawings of what I thought was the same site, absolutely identical and unique. And it was only weeks later when I was going back through my research notes and I realised that actually, you know, one of these is in, uh, it's but, right up there in the north. But what, um, I'd, what I'd like to ask the guys, you know, is where they stand on, on the whole thing, you know, which... Uh, indeed, yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing, that, uh, that when, you, when you get your, uh, your interviewees on, and particularly in Bruce's yeah. uh, case, you know, that uh, so... Uh, so, uh, you know, from whichever stance, you know, your background, so you pulling in people uh, because uh, it's a controversial angle or are you pulling people in because you uh, you're, you have great sympathy for what they're doing and you think that they need a bigger airing? Well, there, there's a little of both. You know, I have to say that, uh, you know, James and, and Jason and I, we, I guess I do have a natural tendency, speaking for myself here, to want to root for the underdog, but there are also a lot of quote-unquote underdogs who are proposing outlandish ideas. Yeah. And, you know, at times that can be damaging. Now, in the field of pseudo-archaeology, there is the, you know, the issue I think that politically and otherwise has to do with, you know, whether a um, whether an alternative theory is offensive or whether it is damaging in some way to cultural groups or to really, you know, the broader message that archaeology tries to convey. And so with full respect to things like that, when you have a very credentialed academician and I think a well-respected professional in the field like Dr. Bradley, uh, what really stood out to us was that many of the attacks and critiques, because let's face it, his hypothesis fundamentally involving the Salutrian hypothesis as it's known uh, it, that term and that general idea did not originate with Bruce Bradley, but he has, no, become, mm -hmm. he has become a modern proponent, uh, yeah. proponent up within the context of the archaeological research that he and the late Dr. Dennis, uh, yeah. um, excuse me, Dennis Stanford of the uh, yeah the Smithsonian yeah. had done. We always wanted to talk to Stanford as yeah, well, yeah. and fortunately we just lost him. But the the two of these gentlemen again are highly qualified professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, and and with the passing of Stanford, it only became even more incumbent upon us. I know Jason had really left the you know led the charge with this. We need to speak with him. More importantly, we need to give Bruce Bradley an opportunity to speak about this. And again, when we're talking about what does the evidence actually entail, the other aspect of this, Rupert, you were kind of touching on it there, seems to be a. And I think at times it's fair to say that this is a fairly. Uh, 
either inherently biased or at times even illogical aversion to the idea of watercraft being utilized by by people in the ancient world. To say that this would have been found on a on a single, you know, on the Eurasian landmass seems entirely plausible. We didn't expect to find the Seleucian culture this far to the to the you know northwest, but yeah. that that yeah. seems plausible. But once we say that they have to cross the water, this is absolutely inconceivable for some reason. Yeah. Why is that? Quite obviously, we are finding earlier and earlier habitation sites and evidence of population growth onto adjacent land masses where inevitably water must have been crossed. And more and more scientific studies are finding very unique ways of proving this likelihood. In my opinion, it's not all that strange. It shouldn't be all that controversial. And we really need to look at that and what other evidence entails. Now, I know my colleague Jason wants to get in here, so I want to let him jump in as <laughs> yeah, well. But yeah. again, it's it's not entirely just about rooting for those underdogs. Uh, I think Bruce Bradley is one of the most respected in the field. And it's tragic to me that he doesn't uh, often get a fair shake with it. Jason? Yeah. 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 And, you know, honestly, when I reached out to Dr. Bradley to come on to the show, that's exactly what I had in mind. Uh, first of all, it was one of the most requested topics to be covered on the show. And again, we try to give attention to our listeners. And when they ask for something, we like, if it's within our capability, to give them you know, what they want to hear. And the Salutrian hypothesis has so many legs to it. Uh, there's so many directions that it can go. But I wanted to bypass basically the controversy and get down to the, the physical evidence. <laughs> and you know, honestly, I felt that Stanford and Bradley being two of the most respected and preeminent archaeologists in the world, not just in the United States. Yeah. Um, I felt that, I just felt wrong about the fact that they had been attacked in such a way, and nobody that I could find had ever just sat down and asked them the questions face-to-face. Yeah. Yes. Well, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Journal or through an article, and then you got to wait six months for another rebuttal, and then it's just back and forth. Meanwhile, in between, there's all this attack on their character, and I'm I'm seeing you know junior archaeologists and grad students attacking them, and I'm like, kind of I kind of had the intention of, you haven't earned that right to be attacking two of the most preeminent archaeologists in the world. So I said, I want to sit down. We obviously wanted to sit down with Dennis Stanford as well, and we did lose him, but I wanted to sit down with Bradley. And regardless of what you think about the Seleucian hypothesis, whether you think it's completely outlandish or you think that there's actually something to it, I just wanted to give him the opportunity to answer the questions in an open forum where he wasn't being attacked on neutral ground. And, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, what we were managed to pull off on that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you really did. Too, it, was, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful interview, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think our geologist also wanted to chime in on that point as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm the uh, the least verbose of the group. But hi, I'm, James. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I didn't want to get my ten cents in here. So, um, you know, uh, back to you know how we talked to Dr. Bradley. I think to me the the important thing uh, is not just with Dr. Bradley, just just in general, is that we provide a platform where we can have an, uh, an open, uh, well-reasoned discussion in a civil manner uh, with professionals without, uh, you know, without any uh, uh, fear of, you know, ad hominem attacks or, yeah. or anything. Because yeah, sure. I think there's just too much of that uh, in today's culture, uh, even, uh, you know, especially in the sciences. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We that find, is so very true. We find 
We've attended uh, a couple of conferences recently, and we find that uh, we, and um, I think you know, you too, are in absolutely the right place at the right time now, because I think academia is crying out for avenues of expression. There is so much in academia that gets covered up, is you know, is is uh, hidden away in scientific papers online, and you know, it's it's quite a job to find them somewhere. And there's a lot of money gone into that work, you know, professional yeah. time, public money, etc. And and not all of it sees the light of day. And I think you know, I, I, if you do, you feel the same way, you know, the, the, in that or way, that. you're providing a public service in that. Respect. Michael, you make such a very important point right there because, you know, I can actually tie this in with the current concerns over this pandemic with the coronavirus. Uh, you know, I, saw, I saw an article online recently talking about uh, a call for openness with regard to access to science periodicals and journals and journal articles because in this development stage, we want to be able to have access to that information. And the article was arguing this point and calling for this, which I think there's probably going to be almost unanimous, if not entirely unanimous, agreement among the scientific community since we're facing this global issue with this. But they nonetheless in the article made the point also that, well, we understand that the paywall you know, issue with academic publishing, I mean, that's what funds a lot of not only the publications that publish yeah, these articles yeah. – but other endeavors that academics all stand behind. And so we understand the necessity for having that paywall, but it really kind of got me thinking there are a lot of things that maybe aren't as critical an issue as the coronavirus pandemic. Archaeology and a lot of very, again, we keep using that term niche, but a lot of niche kind of research avenues would fall into that. The general public will not have access to that kind of information if they cannot, if they are unwilling to pay or if they are unable to access the journals for other reasons. Whereas when the professionals are able to come on and talk about their research uh, and often do so in a way being many of them teachers, educators, you know, science communicators themselves, they can bring that information to the public in a way that is not only more digestible, but in ways that wouldn't be reached if it's behind a paywall in the first place. So absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's a really great point that you raised right there. Yeah, it, it's amazing how much stuff, and it, it in the states it must be absolutely colossal, and particularly with with your enormous remit. But something that you know we're only just starting to do. It's in fact the first one's going to be in the next uh, podcast. Uh, but we started realizing that uh, you know that, that you stumble across something that you think is news. Because, you know, <laughs> some journalist picked it up from somewhere. And so you think, OK, well, I better check this, you know, go back to source to make sure it is, uh, you know, what it says it is. And you find that, well, hold on, this was discovered 20 years ago. How did I not know I about, about this? this. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so we're actually uh, starting a thing where, you know, it's, it's news to us. And because it's news to us, you can be pretty damn sure that it's news to our listeners. And yet academics have never put this in the public domain. It's madness. <laughs> do, do you know what I was going to ask uh, Jason, Michael and James? And it's this, to what extent, and we've found this, a rich seam of investigation, and that's stupid headlines. <laughs> <laughs> the one that springs to mind and led us to uh, an interview with a you know, highly respected academic was uh, Sailors Built Stonehenge. That's wrong, and we sort of put it into the you know funny, funny bit of our uh, podcast, and then you deeper dig a bit deeper, and you find, hang about, that's actually based on a 
somehow somebody's extrapolated that from an actual real archaeological scientific paper that stretches for a hundred or more pages and has taken 20 years of research to (laughs) to come to fruition and so you go down that avenue and you find there's this person with a story to tell Oh, yeah. that's very interesting. But but now you guys were led to this by this this unusual headline. Yeah, I got to say, when it comes to dumb headlines here in the United States, I mean, we have a surplus. We may have a really bad economy right now. <laughs> I have there. to say, the dumb headline <laughs> came out of Fox News. So uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was saying, uh, anytime you see an outlandish headline, you immediately look at the source, and that kind of gives you some insight of whether it's worth clicking on or not. Yeah. Um, but you know that that's something that we see here again. It's going back to what we just discussed. Um, a lot of times the history, again, isn't released to the public. So that creates a situation to where the really interesting research that could turn into legitimate articles, again, is behind that paywall, where if an archaeologist or a university would release that to the general readership, it would allow journalists and other people to use it as a source to put out legitimate articles. Mm -hmm. So when it's being locked away like that, it can create a situation to where um, they have nothing but to dig on old articles and old stories and then try to rehash them for a new audience. Mm. Yeah. So we've, uh, we've, been, uh, we've been talking for nearly half an hour, as far as I can make out. So we should think about drawing um, we proceedings sh- we to a little bit of a close. We should, but I want to throw the same question back at these guys I that they might. asked us when we were talking, yeah. uh, where, uh, when we were talking uh, the other way around. And that's... Uh, if you had to pick something from all your earlier work of of, of a place or of a, of a theme, of a, because, you know, your remit is so big, you know, which is the thing that has really fired you up more than any other? I think we should have three responses to that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we uh, should. Let's have our geologist answer that first, and that thereby gives me a little time to think about it. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, James. What's yours? Sure. You know, if we're talking about the the, the archaeological uh, stuff that that the show focuses on mostly, I would say the thing that probably was completely unknown to me and was most has been most impressive to me uh, overall is the Native American mound structures in the middle part of, of the uh, continent, uh, Cahokia and uh, Mound City. Uh, those things, I'm not gonna lie, I did not know those things existed, and it really really made a big impression on me almost as much as my, you know, early on when I was a young man and I got interested in geology by seeing the Rocky mountains and the Cascade mountains in the Western part of the United States. It, it was that level of, uh, of uh, impression on me. Right. Fantastic. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more uh, about them, what they are? Uh, Jason, do you want to, you want to feel that he's, he's more the expert here. On, on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so there's, several different types of mound structures in the United States um, that are actually in a lot of ways very similar to what you see there in the United Kingdom throughout Europe. Uh, But uh, there's there's two distinct types. There's a woodland period type, uh, generally about 2,000 or 3,000 years old, which uh, can occur as an effigy, so the shape of an animal or a a different type of uh, interpretation, sometimes human. Um, And then you have uh, the Mississippian culture, which was the last culture before contact with the Spanish. And uh, they built very large uh, pyramidal, often pyramidal or platform shaped, uh, very, very large, you know, 60, 70, 80 feet high, uh, a a different type of of mound, but still part of a mound building culture. 
Um, and then, you know, to answer your previous question, I guess I'll just pick it up there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my my true interest in, that I love, I mean, all these things are, are wonderful and, and that's why we do them. But my area of expertise, if you will, my, my passion is the peopling of America. Yeah. So um, the earliest, you know, people, the Clovis uh, tradition, uh, possible pre-Clovis, those are my areas of interest and where I uh -huh. dedicate most of my time and research. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I'm interested in, in all the way up to, you know, modern history as well. But the peopling of this continent is, is really my passion and where I spend most of my time researching. Brilliant. Fantastic. So I, I do want to ask Jason, was there a particular site uh, with regard to your interest? Because uh, I think the fellows are, are wondering, what's that go-to place you'd go? Mm. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> being that uh, I'm from uh, the state of South Carolina, we have a, a very, very intriguing site known as the Topper site. Yeah. And uh, it is headed by uh, our very southeast, a very famous southeastern archaeologist named Dr. Albert Goodyear. Um, uh -huh. One of the videos that we did on our channel, uh, we had did the short documentary about it, and he uh, seems to have evidence that indicates a potential for human habitation at that site up to 50,000 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, it, would, it would literally rewrite the history books. Of course, like anything else, it's extremely controversial, um, but he stuck to his guns over 30 years, and the site itself is quite impressive. Yeah. So yeah, the topper site in South Carolina for me. Yeah, again, that's Thank that's, you. that's high on the list for me too. You know, I definitely want to name one though that I think that the public can get access to, and this one is you know easily uh, something that people can visit if they're here in the states. That would be Serpent Mound. You know, the the Great Serpent yeah. Mound of Ohio. There are serpent effigies in parts of the British Isles as well. Yep. which is fascinating to me. And again, I don't propose that there's necessarily some sort of connection between those, apart from simply that whatever that pervading kind of archetype in the mind of, you know, what draws us to and what we, causes humans to be fascinated with For serpents. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, we've spoken with Dr. Bradley Lepper of the Ohio History Connection and a few other researchers like uh, Dr. Jared Burks, who have, yeah, talked about these sites. And again, having spoken with the academics about locations like uh, Serpent Mound only make it more interesting to us. But when you go there, I will admit that it's a very visceral kind of experience. You know, you feel something pulling, you know, on your soul when you go there. And it is a little like time travel. So yeah, yeah it would yeah. be my site. Guys, thank you uh, so, so much. Um, I, we, obviously, we've barely, barely scratched uh, the surface in these short minutes. But I hope that our listeners um, will take away something you know that we're just beginning to get uh, to grips with <laughs> ourselves you know and and uh, we haven't really realized you know that that american history may be short but american prehistory is deep 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 yes there's Absolutely. so yes. much to it um, there really is i i think what what you guys are doing is fantastic yeah. and so for all our listeners if you want to uh uh, follow up on this, then go to sevenages.org is uh, is the website. And there is a, a wealth of stuff on there. You could keep yourselves busy for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Not too busy to stay away from ours, obviously, yeah. but, um, but, <laughs> but really, you should go and have a look. There's, some, uh, there's something there for absolutely everybody. It really is. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you, Sorry. Jason. Thank, thank you, you Micah. Thank you, James. And uh, yes, once again, thank you to our listeners for, for listening in. Hope you enjoyed that. 
and uh, hope um, we'll be able to uh, hook up with the guys again and uh, bring you a follow-up podcast in the yeah, future. We'll keep you posted. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, If you're still listening, just a reminder that if you enjoyed this show and would like an opportunity to support us in growing the Prehistory Guys project, the podcast, the films, the live streaming shows, you can do so via the Patreon crowdfunding platform. Go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to become part of the team, help enable our work going forward, and to unlock special content only available to our patrons. Until the next time, once again, thanks for listening.